Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 5, 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Southside. Many of you uh, probably don't know yet, but one of our members that recently left to Germany, uh, Richard and Kim Farmer, they went to serve there in a Christian school, and Richard was recently diagnosed with cancer and uh, is not doing well at all right now and is in the hospital, and Kim can't be there, and so they're beginning, uh, they're still doing some tests, trying to pinpoint some things, but also going to start some, some pretty serious treatments. So I want to begin our time by praying for him. Let's pray. Father, we do pray for Richard. We pray for healing. Know that you can heal right now. It's easily within your power to do so. And so we ask you to do that, that you would heal him. And God, we pray for Kim as she waits and, and can't be with him like she wants to be, that you would just give her special grace and encouragement, that she would feel your presence in a unique way and, and would, would trust and, and hope in you. Pray that for the rest of the family as well. And God, be with Richard. I pray that his faith would be strong, that his hope in you would be strong, that he would be a witness to the medical team around him and that you would see him through. We know that he's ready, but we pray that he would have more time here to live for you and for your glory. God, we pray for like-minded churches in the area. This morning, we pray for the ministry of Redeemer Church of Abilene, that even this morning, that you would be building your church through your word and that it would be a, a service centered on Christ Jesus, that the saints would be built up. We pray for their elders. We pray for their holiness, first and foremost, so that you would continue to give them favor. We want to see people saved. We want to see people discipled and pray that you would use Redeemer to that end. God, as we think about history, yesterday, 500 years ago yesterday was the day that Martin Luther, your flawed but bold servant, declared at the Diet of Worms that his conscience was held captive to your word. And humanly speaking, humanly speaking, we're here because of that conviction, here able to sing congregationally and here with open Bibles in our language on our lap. And so we're thankful for his boldness and so many of the Protestant reformers so that we could have these freedoms, but most importantly, the clarity of the gospel of grace that we've been singing about all morning. God, we pray for continued fruit from our time together at the Kingsmen Advance. So encouraged by the men of this church and we pray that this weekend will continue to bear fruit as your word does its work, that men would leave with an intentionality, that men would pursue you, that men would hate and fight sin together. Men who have families would lead them selflessly and sacrificially. And God, would you grant humility this morning as we approach your word and hard words from the king of the world, we need receptive hearts. Thank you for graciously revealing yourself to us. Thank you for not leaving us in the dark. Thank you for your word and the promise that it will accomplish that which you sent it for. It will not return empty. And so would you help us not to lean on our own understanding, but lean on you and acknowledge you in all our ways. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but your word stands forever. We pray this through Jesus Christ, your son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. 
Amen. Well, as a church, we've been journeying through the gospel according to Matthew and specifically the Sermon on the Mount here for a little while. And we're currently in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount in some ways. We're in Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to grab a Bible from the, the chair in front of you and open it up to page 760. What we do at Southside is just walk book by book, verse by verse through scripture. And so now we're in chapter five. We saw in chapter four that Jesus says the kingdom of heaven was breaking in and the kingdom, remember, is the arrival of God's sovereign, saving, heavenly rule on earth. And what does it look like when the kingdom dawns? Well, that's in so many ways what the Sermon on the Mount is about. What does a people look like who submit to the king? And he tells us. So far we've seen that these people, these kingdom people, Starting in verse 21, we resist anger. We prioritize conflict resolution. We fight lust and pursue purity. And today we're going to see that they value marriage. And friends, the message this morning is going to be very countercultural. But again, we're calling this series a contrast society. We're different. Increasingly we're different, right? That's what he's getting at in verse 13, that we're salt and we're light. We're distinct. And increasingly, one main way we can be salt and light is by having strong marriages. Because divorce is just so rampant today. Many in here have been divorced. And probably all of us in here have been touched by divorce in some way, some form, some fashion. And if you've been divorced, the, the tendency will be to, to be feeling guilty and condemned. It'll be a hard sermon to hear. That's the temptation. But let me just remind you of what we've been singing about all morning. If you're in Christ, your sins are forgiven. It's the beauty of the Christian faith. That when you trust in Christ, there's no condemnation. That's what we've been singing about all morning. But the thing is, we forget it. We were together, you know, with the Kingsman Advance this weekend. And one of the breaks, we did some competitions together. By the way, thanks to the team who pulled that off. And uh, one really helpful thing, I don't know whose idea it was, but was some questions between stations. And uh, we would talk to one another, get to know one another a little bit better between stations. And the, one of the questions was, what's something that it took you the longest to learn about the Lord? And I think all of my group... I think we had six, at least four of us. Basically, the answer was grace. Isn't that interesting? What's the, the thing it took longest for us to learn about the Lord? And it was grace. One of them was that I'm fully forgiven. Isn't that odd? You know why? Because that's the main message of the Bible. We're just so hard-hearted and, and fallen at the end of the day. And so let me remind you, don't forget grace. There's grace. It's what the cross is about. Forgiveness. If you're in Christ, you've been forgiven of your sins. But it's important to say we've been forgiven of our sins. And so part of Christian maturity is the ability to look at our lives and examine our, our background and our past in light of God's word. And we've fallen short in so many ways. And we call a spade a spade. And we're able to say that was wrong. That was sin. If I could go back, I would probably do it differently, but we don't look back. We focus on the present and we can say, we can move forward. And so I don't want you to leave here this morning looking back with guilt or regret, but I want you looking forward with fresh resolve. Let's consider two points, what the law said 
what King Jesus says, and then we're going to spend the bulk of our time thinking about ways to strengthen our marriages. So first, what the law said, it's there in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So here Jesus, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 24, which is the only passage in the Old Testament that explicitly deals with divorce. Let me just read you a little bit of the context so you know. Let me read the first four verses from Deuteronomy 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled for that's an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. The point of this passage here in Deuteronomy is that if a woman's divorced by her husband, marries another, and then is released from that marriage by another divorce or death, she's not allowed to return to the first husband. That's what the passage is saying. In this passage, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. And here's what's important. This passage was being twisted and distorted and abused in Jesus's day. So then, second point, what does King Jesus say? Look at verse 32. Let me read them together again. 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And so from last week, this week, we see clearly that sexuality and marriage matter to Jesus. They matter to the king. He's Lord over these areas too. You know, sometimes we, we talk about Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior. I actually don't really like that terminology because he's not just a personal Lord and Savior. He's the cosmic Lord and Savior. But the idea that he's the Lord and he gets real personal, he gets into our grill, our personal details of our lives, that's true. That's why Christianity is so hard. Jesus has a word. He has authority that is to be exercised in every area of our lives. And Jesus abhorred divorce and remarriage. He says that to divorce, except for sexual immorality, causes adultery. Why is that? Because if you divorce for another reason, it's not legitimate. And therefore, the marriage stands. You're still married. And so if you remarry, you're committing adultery. If you divorce your wife, it's illegitimate except for this exception here, and you cause her to commit adultery. It's a little bit helpful. Normally, we don't need any help. We really don't hear, but it's a little bit helpful to understand a little bit of background. What was going on at the time of Jesus in Jewish culture, and there was a lot of debate about Deuteronomy 24 and other things, and there really was two schools that most everybody knew about. There was the, the school of Shammai that was very strict and the school of Hillel, which was very loose. 
And with this ladder, a man could divorce his wife for almost any reason, for very trivial reasons, even including such petty reasons as burning the food most famously or finding someone more attractive, almost any reason for this, this rabbinic school of interpretation. And that had become the norm in Jesus' day. That view was the majority view in Jesus' day. And so you had an abuse of Deuteronomy 24. This is really just one example of so many where if the people of God aren't rigorous, we will drift away from biblical truth by the culture and by convenience. But here, the Lord of the world says that his people are not to divorce. His people are to stay married. And he gives this one exception. He says, except on the grounds of sexual immorality. He gives one exception, except for one exception, stay married. In this exception, this word here for sexual immorality is this word, I mentioned it last week, it's porneia. And it's a broad term, it's a general term to, that encompasses all sorts of sexual unfaithfulness. King James Version translated it fornication. That's actually a little bit too narrow. The word is broader than that. It does include that, but it's broader. I really think the ESV has a great translation here, except for sexual immorality. And so hear this. In the case of sexual immorality, divorce is permissible. Not required, not even encouraged. God's will's never divorce. It's always reconciliation. Malachi 2 says God hates divorce. It is to be avoided. But Jesus says that in the case of sexual immorality, it may be necessary because it breaks the marriage covenant. Jesus expands on this. You know, this is just two verses, but he expands on this in Matthew 19. Turn there with me. Matthew 19, verse 3. We want to base our lives on what he says. Verse 3, and Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read, which he does that so often, doesn't he? What does the son of God often do? Points us to the book. Have you not read the Bible? That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, and he quotes here from Genesis chapter two, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two. But one flesh, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Notice a few things Jesus says here. First, he goes to the created order. He cares about first principles. Have you not read? Don't you know what the Bible says? There in Genesis, God joined one man and one woman to become one flesh for a lifetime. And notice how he says it in verse 6. There at the end, he says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. When a person gets married, it's God who does the joining. And therefore, who do we think we are to separate what God has joined? Look at verse 7. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, 
Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And so they bring up Deuteronomy 24, the law. Jesus says the old covenant law, it was just a temporary concession because of your hardness of heart. But he says, I've come, this is the whole message of the gospel, to conquer and change the hardness of your heart. And from the beginning, there was no such concession. God's will from the beginning was one man and one woman for a lifetime, permanent monogamous marriage. Haven't you read? But there are two exceptions. In my view, these are debated matters, and if you have questions, we'd love to talk about them. There's lots and lots of literature on this issue, but I think there are two exceptions in Scripture where divorce may be okay, never encouraged. Jesus here gives us the one exception for divorce, and therefore, I think, remarriage, and he says it's sexual immorality. The Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, gives another exception in 1 Corinthians 7, and for the sake of time, we won't go there, but it's the idea that when you're abandoned by an unbeliever. Paul says there, if you're married and maybe you become a Christian or whatever the case may be, if you're married to an unbeliever and they'll stay, stay, he says. But if an unbeliever leaves, separates, abandons, he says, let it be so. It's okay. So in these two rare cases, divorce is permissible. And therefore, in my view, that means remarriage is also Permissible. And so according to the teaching of Scripture, any divorce outside of these two exceptions is unlawful according to God. So let's not get sidetracked, though, by the exceptions. Let's not miss the point here that Jesus wants. The kingdom is dawning. What does it look like? My people don't divorce. Christians must avoid divorce in every possible way. And so if this is the case, how can we do it? How can we get there? Let me remind you, God picks us up where we are. We start where we are, not where we are not. And so where can we go from here? Marriage is hard. So how can we stay married? But not only how can we stay married, how can we thrive in marriage? That's what I want at Southside. Yeah, I want marriages that last, but not merely lasting marriages, but thriving marriages. Charles Sackett was a psychology prof at one of the Southern Baptist seminaries, and he and his team conducted a Christian marital research project, and they found from their study that only 5% of the Christian couples we're honestly experiencing a godly, Christ-centered relationship with each other. Only 5%. Tackett found that about 40% were on a rapid divorce trajectory. Another 40 were on a slow divorce trajectory. And so where are the thriving marriages? And so I want to end our time together by considering 11 ways to divorce-proof your marriage. Maybe you're already married, maybe you're doing great, maybe you're struggling, maybe you want to be married one day. How can we get there? Number one, from the beginning, just know that divorce is not an option. It's just not an option. 
Don't even entertain the thought. Don't even use the word. Number two, if you're not married, marry a believer. God's word is clear. Marrying a non-Christian is simply not an option. 2 Corinthians 6 says this. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? So marry a Christian. Number three, worship Jesus in all of life. My favorite marriage verse is in Matthew chapter 6. Look there in the next page. It actually says nothing about marriage, but it's verse 33. Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. When you have two people seeking the kingdom first, a, a healthy marriage will happen. And it won't get healthy without focusing on Christ and his kingdom. We have to see that we're made for something larger than just you and your spouse. It's the kingdom. And when you're both seeking righteousness, you won't do the things that destroy marriages. And you will do the things that cultivate a healthy marriage. And so this common goal, this common purpose of glorifying God will bring you together, will give you a common mission, common talking points, something to pray towards, to give towards. Sounds cliche, but it's true. The couple that prays together stays together. Men, husbands, if you're not praying daily with your wives, here's your number one application from this sermon. Begin praying daily with your wife. Worship Jesus in all of life. Focus on honoring God and see marriage as part of that calling. View your marriage as an aspect of discipleship, your school of sanctification. You know, God chose your spouse for you. Your spouse was a strategic choice made by a wise and sovereign God to use the easy parts and the hard parts to chip away at your character. Romans 8, 29, God works all things including your spouse's idiosyncrasies and sin for the good. What is the good? To conform you to the image of Jesus. Gary Thomas's book, Sacred Marriage. I haven't read it, but I love the subtitle. What if God designed marriage to make you holy more than happy? Realize that the problems in your marriage are largely to chip away at your sin and selfishness. That's so helpful, isn't it? Realize that the main problem is on my ends. It's always true. It's always the case that I'm first a sinner and then second sinned against. And so a flourishing and happy marriage is not rooted in romance. It's rooted in worship. And so be concerned with God's glory and your sanctification. Worship Jesus in all of life. Listen to J.C. Ryle. He says, happy are the marriages which observe three rules. Number one, marry only in the Lord and only after God's approval and blessing. Number two, do not expect too much from your spouse, remembering that marriage is the union of two sinners, not two angels. Number three, strive for one's growth in Christ. The more holy people are, the more happier they are. Fourth, die to self. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus calls the crowds and he says, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. You know, the sooner we realize that marriage is not about having my needs met and my interests in mind primarily, the better off we'll be. And friends, most marriage books are bad. Most books, period, are bad. Most marriage books are all about you and making me happy and getting all my needs met. The sooner we learn we die to self and we give of self for the good of our spouse, the better our marriage will be. Number five, keep your vows. Vows are so significant. One secular writer recently had an article and suggested that we need to change our traditional vows. He says, quote, I often get betrothed folks on one-on-one and I ask them whether they really believe the vow that they're about to say, the one that concludes with the words, till death do us part. And so far the results have been overwhelming. Almost no one believes it, end quote. And so he has a suggestion. He calls them true vows and it's a less permanent vow. We've lost the significance of the wedding ceremony. We've lost the weightiness of it. You know, think about it. We, we invite our family, and ideally, we invite our local church. This is why I'm a big advocate of having a, wear, a wedding ceremony, marriage ceremony, in the place where you're going to do life as a church family, in your local church building. And hey, now we can actually have a row. Because there's something symbolic and meaningful about the fact that you're here standing before, yes, your family, but I would say primarily your faith family. And part of it is asking them for their help as you are about to begin the hard journey of marriage. But it's also is is a public commitment ceremony before them. Keep me accountable. And of course, the main guest of honor is God himself. Husband, before God and all who are present here, do you take her to be your wife? Do you commit yourself to her happiness and to her usefulness in God's kingdom? And do you promise to love, cherish, honor, trust, and serve her in sickness and in health for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, and to be true and loyal to her as long as you both shall live? It's a public commitment service. Our vows are not a declaration of present love, but a mutually binding promise of future commitment because in the Bible, marriage is not a contract, you know, where we do our part until they quit doing theirs and then we break it. Our vows contain no conditions, no ifs, no unlesses, no untils, because marriage is a covenant. You made vows, so you keep them. And don't make them if you don't intend to keep them. Six, which is actually related, is divine, define love from the Bible. Biblical love is not merely walks along the beach and roses and warm fuzzies and fairy tales and rom-coms. Those things are fine, at least some of them. But in the Bible, the love that binds a man to a woman and a woman to a man for a lifetime, it's cross-shaped love. Our culture is so confused on what love is. In the Bible, 1 John three sixteen, by this we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our life for 
one another. Ephesians 5, 2, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Ephesians 5, 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Love is laying down your life. Love is giving of self for the good of another. Love's not about you getting your needs met. It's about you meeting needs. Of course, our culture defines love merely in emotional terms. But friends, emotions are no foundation for marriage because feelings come and go. Feelings are flickering flames that fade. Biblically, there's no category for falling out of love. You can fall out of commitment, but one of the reasons our families are broken We've let culture rather than scripture define love. Divorce is rampant due in part because we misunderstand what love is. Love is an action verb. Love is an act of the will. And in God's kindness, feelings often accompany the action. So when I'm officiating a marriage ceremony, I'm not asking, Taylor, do you love grace? Because everybody in the room knows that. But I'm asking, Taylor, will you love grace because love is a promise of future activity love is an act of the will you can love even when you don't like somebody funny oddly enough when I was engaged I don't have a lot of Christians in my family when I was engaged uh, one of my cousins who happens to be here today said Blake there'll be times when you uh, when you wake up and you just don't like Alicia (laughs) you're still called the lover And I remember at the time I was engaged thinking, I don't know what this guy's talking about. That'd never be the case. (laughs) Let me, let me listen. Let me, this is a long quote I want to read from you, but it's so good. I want to read it. This is from C.S. Lewis speaking about this issue. Hasn't changed since his day. He says, now no feeling can be relied on to last in its full intensity or even to last at all. Knowledge can last. Principles can last. Habits can last. But feelings come and go. And in fact, whatever people say, the state called being in love usually does not last. If the old fairy tale ending, they lived happily ever after, is taken to mean they felt for the next 50 years exactly as they felt the day before they were married, then it says what probably never was nor ever would be true and would be highly undesirable if it were. Who could bear to live in that excitement for even five years? What would become of your work, your appetite, your sleep, your friendships? But of course, ceasing to be in love need not mean ceasing to love. I'm going to say that again. Ceasing to be in love need not mean ceasing to love. Love in this second sense, love as distinct from being in love, is not merely a feeling. It's a deep unity maintained by the will and deliberately strengthened by habits, reinforced by, in Christian marriages, the grace which both partners ask and receive from God. They can have this love for each other even at those moments when they do not like each other. As you love yourself, even when you do not like yourself. They can retain this love even when each would easily, if they allowed themselves to be in love with someone else. 
being in love first moved them to promise fidelity. This quieter love enables them to keep the promise. It's on this love that the engine of marriage is run. Being in love was the explosion that started it. People get from books the idea that if you have married the right person, you may expect to go on being in love forever. As a result, when they find they are not, they think this proves that they've made a mistake and are entitled to a change, not realizing that when they have changed, the glamour will presently go out of the new love just as it went out of the old one. In this department of life, as in every other, thrills come at the beginning and do not last. We don't define love based on emotion. We define love biblically from the cross. Maybe you say, love, man, I'm not even talking about love. I'm at the point of hate. Jesus has a word for you. Look at chapter 5, verse 44. I say, you, I say to you, love your enemies. <laughs> Number seven, confess and forgive. That's just got to be the culture of a gospel-centered home. Because sin's always going to be there. And if sin's always going to be there, then confession's always got to be there. Confession and forgiveness again and again and again and again because you will continue to sin. You're both still sinners. And so we do that regularly. If you weren't here for the sermon on Matthew 5.21, we talked a lot about it. Make those principles the culture of the home, the four G's of conflict resolution. Glorify God, get the log out first, then gently restore and be reconciled. Or when it comes to confession, go back and listen to the seven A's of confession and do it biblically or the four promises of forgiveness and actually grants biblical forgiveness. And you'll have to do it your whole marriage. It's what a healthy marriage consists of. Confession and repentance and forgiveness. Again and again and again and again. Let me flip over to Matthew 18. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 21. Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Because forgiven people forgive people. Keep short accounts. And men, we just read earlier from Ephesians chapter 5. Men, you're the chief repenter. You take initiative in this confession and repentance and forgiveness. Remember we talked about maybe you're just, maybe you're just guilty of 2%. Men, fully own 100% of your 2%. Confess and forgive eighth. Look for evidences of grace. You know, especially if you've been married a little while, we, we tend to just focus on the negative. Your spouse is imperfect. They have idiosyncrasies. Some of those will never change. In fact, it was sort of, what was it? I guess it was Saturday. I've been thinking about this and I just resolved. Alicia does so many things well, and I get up here, I've got the mic. She could give you a dozen of my idiosyncrasies she's resolved to live with. But I just resolved, you know, you open our door, and there's a, there's a key rack. So just, just key rack, key rack. I'm sure resolved. 65% of the time, the keys will not be on that key rack. 
I don't know where they will be, but they won't be on the key rack. <laughs> we focus on the silliest things. You know, the other thing I've resolved, I asked her of mine. She said she, she thought about it a little while. The thing that came to mind is I just can, when I'm driving the van, I can never park it correctly in the garage. It's always, she says, at an angle. And I'm thinking, well, I back out so easily. In your way, you've got to like five-point turn it to back out. And so I like my way. And she said, it's too close to the bikes. You know, we've got like nine of them on the other side. So... <laughs> I've also resolved, you know, the, the, the fridge, I'll, I'm a sauce guy, but I'll always have to check expiration dates. Just always, I've, I've learned my lesson. I've got to look. Just because it's in here does not mean it's edible. <laughs> Maybe some of y'all during the March Madness, there was this Geico commercial that they played over and over and it was, they were saying, you know, we love our new home, but we've got this ant infestation and it was actually ants coming in, not A-N-T, but A-U-N-T-S. They'd come in and, Teddy, have you accepted my friend request yet? And one of them was, uh, she was in the fridge, expired, expired, expired. <laughs> I need an Aunt Bonnie in my life. One time there was a bride, she was about to get married and she was just so nervous about forgetting how everything went in the ceremony and just couldn't think straight and was freaking out. And so the pastor just said, here, just do this. As you're, those doors open, just focus on a few things. First, just, just look at the aisle. And just have your eyes on the aisle. And as you begin about halfway down, just rise your eyes up, raise your eyes up, and just, just look at the altar and focus on the altar. You'll do fine. As you get closer, just, just then look, look at your groom, and, and you'll do just fine. And it was a great plan. Worked, it worked great. Everything went well. And a little bit later at the reception, this attendee comes and said, Pastor, I'm really worried about this, this couple. I'm really worried about their marriage. And Pastor felt great about it. Well, what do you mean? And she said, well, the bride, the bride, the whole time she's headed down, she's just saying, I'll alter him. I'll alter him. <laughs> so we need to quit focusing on altering our spouse and look for God's work in them. Because when you zoom out, there will be so many things to be thankful for. We tend to focus on the negative and not the positive. Look for God's work in their life. I recently read a, a secular psychology book I like to do from time to time. And I said one of the key traits of successful couples is that they nurture admiration by deliberately looking for what is good in the other. And so focus on the positive and you'll realize just how blessed you are. Ninth, pursue counsel. Counsel is always a good idea, whether it be formal or with just deep Christian friendships with fellow members. D groups, as you're meeting in your D groups, you ought to always include prayer for marriages and exhortations and ideas about how to continually improve as a spouse. So much, if you're married, if you're not married and want to be married, so much of your discipleship becomes related to your marriage. Spurgeon once said, we ought to be such husbands that every husband in the parish may safely be such as we are. Same for wives. Is it so? So stir each other up for love and good deeds. And seek counsel through books. Practice I try to do is just to read a good marriage book every year. I'll put some on our Facebook tomorrow. Just to stay fresh because here's the challenge. One of the biggest challenges we get in ruts and things that we know, we forget. And so seeking counsel and reading good books on occasion, it'll help us to not be 
stuck in a rut. Stay fresh. Tenth, and maybe most importantly, if you've been married a little while, keep working. Like your whole life. Good marriages require work. No one drifts together, always apart. A divorce-proof marriage is not like a tree, you know, plant it, water it, let it grow. It's like a never-ending house, brick by brick, always building, never finished, always pursuing, faithful till the end. Don't be rocked to sleep by the regularity. A healthy marriage is a healthy marriage because by the grace of God, the people in that marriage never stopped working on it. So keep working, keep pursuing, keep dating. You will never arrive. And don't think you are. Continue to work. You know, one of the things you see regularly now is when kids leave the home, divorces happen. I'm I'm at the age where I just still can't fathom that. But I think a lesson is prioritize your marriage, not your children. No child-centered homes in here. Focus on your marriage because then when the the children leave, it's just going to be you two. There's going to come a day where there's going to be two plates at the end of that table. Will you have worked on your marriage? Keep working. Eleventh, embody the gospel. We read from Ephesians 5, and it tells us that the whole point of the institution of marriage was to be a picture, an advertisement, a display of Christ and the church. Paul tells wives to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. And then he commands husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And then he says this in Ephesians 5.31, quoting Genesis 2, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Simply incredible. Don't miss the logic there. The Holy Spirit through Paul saying that God in Genesis 2 created the institution of marriage with the purpose that it would display Christ and the church. The ultimate purpose of marriage is to put the covenant relationship of Christ and his church on display, which is why divorce is such a tragedy. It's a false gospel. Marriage is a reflection of God's unbreakable faithfulness. Founded on the gospel to embody and display the gospel. There's a book called Love That Lasts. I'm gonna read this quote to you from it. When we grasp the depth of God's love for us revealed in the gospel, when we rest in the joy of God's forgiveness toward us in the gospel, when we experience God's transforming power in us through the gospel, and when we begin to emulate the pattern of humility and obedience we see in the gospel, what a wonderful difference this will make in our lives and marriages. Nothing is more essential to a marriage and nothing brings more hope than applying the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, let's be salt and light. 
in a culture that's lost the seriousness and sacredness of the institution of marriage, let's resolve to be different, to stand out, to be salt and light by valuing marriage, fighting for flourishing marriages, and as Jesus commands us here, staying married. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for those in the room that have been divorced or have been affected by divorce, that they would be reminded afresh of your grace, your redeeming grace. So glad that you're the God of second and third and fourth and fifth chances. And I pray that they would leave here encouraged by the grace that that they've received for all sin, but also this sin. I pray that we would be a church that calls a spade a spade and is not afraid to talk about what the Bible talks about. And I pray that it would be a church that values marriages, our own, but also the marriages of others. And as we're discipling one another, we would care about the health of marriages and we're raising children. We'd be training them to be followers of you first, secondly, a husband and a wife, and then third, whatever vocation it is that they may be doing. I pray for God-centered marriages. I pray against divorce. I pray for those marriages now that are in a bad place. I pray that you would give them a fresh word, but also hope. You are in the business of redeeming. And there are marriages in here that were on the rocks that are now flourishing. We're so glad for the the hope that you give and the fact that when two people get to work, first and foremost, on our own sin, marriages can, can come back to life. I pray that we would have a biblical view and know that there'll be oftentimes that my little petty needs or interests won't be met, but I'm not called to have my needs met. I'm called to give of myself for the good of another because this relationship is to be an embodiment and picture of Christ and the church. Help us. We pray it in the name of Christ. Amen.